Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today is a unique day at the Double Truck Podcast. We are presenting excerpts from two outstanding features that chronicle the community of Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. A community torn apart when a gunman took the lives of 17 people on February 14, 2018. These powerful stories show us how one town has worked to tell the world that the lives lost that day represent so much more than one moment and will not simply be defined by those six tragic minutes. Stick around after these excerpts for my conversations with ESPN senior writers Liz Merrill and Steve Wolf as we talk about how the true spirit of Stoneman Douglas High School will live on through the legacy of those they lost. Now we present an excerpt from There Is No Handbook on This by Liz Merrill. There's no handbook on this. After the deaths of 17 of their own, the family, friends, and teachers of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School attempted to answer the question, What Now? by Liz Merrill. It seems silly now that the biggest thing weighing on Assistant Athletic Director Marilyn Rule's mind the afternoon of February 14th was a basketball game. Stoneman Douglas had a regional quarterfinal date with Cypress Bay the next night, and Rule was in the locker room getting ready for a 3 o'clock practice. The Eagles made a deep run in the playoffs last year, but this postseason didn't look nearly as promising after star player Abby Sue tore her ACL on February 7th. Realizing that this could be their last practice, Rule wanted to get the team ready for Cypress Bay, but also make the workout fun. A dozen things bounced through her mind when the fire alarm went off at 2.22 p.m. She grabbed her walkie-talkie and headed outside, unaware that a gunman armed with an assault rifle and more than 300 rounds of ammunition had just opened fire on the first floor of Building 12. Three-fourths of Rule's family was on campus that afternoon. Over at the baseball field, her husband, Jeff Heinrich, was watering the grass in anticipation of practice. Their son, Kevin, is one of Stoneman Douglas's best pitchers, sturdily built like his father. Rule was not particularly worried about the safety of her family when a mass of students poured outside. Her younger son, Colton, is in middle school. It was supposed to be a fire drill. She was surprised to see Kevin just a few feet away. He'd just gone on a bathroom pass and somehow wound up right next to her. A miracle, she says now. When they first heard pops, they figured it was fireworks. But then a code red went out on her radio, and the next sounds felt like bullets whizzing over their heads. They ran and wound up in the culinary room, with 63 others piled into a space roughly the size of three large closets. Student David Hogg, who became a national activist after the mass shooting and who was falsely accused by conspiracy theorists of being an actor instead of a student, was among those sheltered in the room. Heinrich is a sergeant with the Coral Springs Police Department. Two years ago, he was hailed as a hero for thwarting a potential school shooting in Coral Springs, which is near Parkland. He was wearing shorts and a T-shirt on the afternoon of February 14th because he was off duty. He didn't have his gun. He has beaten himself up over not having his gun. Heinrich heard people screaming and ran toward the parking lot. He saw a kid with a hole in his right leg. Heinrich helped get 15-year-old Kyle Lehman to the baseball clubhouse, grabbed a first aid kit, and stuffed the wound with gauze and bandages. He got a good description of the shooter from Kyle and called it in. 
a police captain from Coral Springs handed him a gun and a bulletproof vest. He headed toward Building 12. At some point, he called his wife. Where's Kevin? He asked Rule. She told Heinrich that Kevin was with her. He was safe, and she could feel her husband exhale through the phone. This is the real deal, he told her. There's an active shooter on campus. Rule never worried about Heinrich. When you're married to a cop, you eventually figure out that your spouse has chosen this life, and you can't spend your time worrying. She focused on keeping the kids quiet and calm. They huddled close for more than an hour, watching their school implode on a computer screen. Nobody knew how bad it was. Heinrich eventually arranged for them to get a ride, and they got home around seven that night. Rule had left her purse inside the school, and she had nothing. No keys, no money, no ID. But a neighbor had a key to their house. When Rule knocked on the door, the neighbor was crying. She wrapped Rule and Kevin in a hug. Their regional game was postponed a week, but it wasn't enough time. One of Rule's players, Maddie Wilford, had been shot at least three times. Wilford's injuries were so bad that first responders initially thought she was dead. How could they possibly set foot in a gym? Everyone was mourning someone. Rule eventually decided that Stoneman Douglas would forfeit its girls' basketball game. She couldn't fathom doing it. She had spent her whole life telling her teams to never quit. In 25 years of coaching, she had never forfeited anything. Not a scrimmage, not a rec league game. A week after the shooting, Rule sits in a diner near her house, staring at a plate of eggs and tomatoes. Above the counter, a TV plays nonstop coverage. In her scant amount of free time, she tries to watch and read everything. Stories of the dead, stories of when school will start again, even some of the conspiracy stuff. Throughout the breakfast, the only time she perks up is when she talks about Abby Sue. As a junior, the kid could grab the rim. 25 years of coaching, and Sue's the best she's ever had, and... She's interrupted when a police officer approaches the table. He'd noticed her Stoneman Douglas polo shirt. So, he says, is that hog kid a student, or is he... Rule stops him. He was in the closet with me, she says. He's in my son's math class. Don't listen to that bullshit. The cop says it still wouldn't surprise him, and the conversation eventually shifts to building border walls and possibly arming teachers. Rule says she isn't a fan of that. Here's the thing that I think is amazing, Rule tells him. People say, why did this happen at Douglas? It's the safest city in all of Florida. And the response is that Stoneman Douglas is the only place that can make change happen. If Stoneman Douglas can't, nobody can. She thanks the cop for being a police officer. Thank you for what you do, he says. You kept your kids safe. The last night of his life, Chris Hickson was supposed to be home early. It was curriculum night at Stoneman Douglas, sort of an orientation for new students. How long could that possibly take? A massive line of parents formed in front of him, armed with questions about their kids playing sports. And Hickson wound up staying longer than anyone because he couldn't just leave if people needed him. His wife, Debbie, used to get frustrated that he spent so much time at a job that forced him to drive about 45 minutes one way and paid a little more than half of what she made as a magnet program coordinator at South Broward High. Chris was never one to delegate. He wanted to be at every football game and pep rally. When a coach would leave unexpectedly, he'd often take over for a season without pay. 
He was rarely home in time for dinner and ate most of his meals out of the microwave. But late nights, after 10.30, was their time. He and Debbie would crawl into bed, TV on, and talk about their days. Jimmy Kimmel Live would be playing in the background until Kimmel started criticizing Donald Trump. And Chris would groan and say, why do we have to watch this and then turn it to MASH instead. They met at a wedding. She was the maid of honor, and he was a 20-year-old in the Navy who didn't know anybody but the groom. She felt sorry for him, sitting there all alone, and they talked. It was such an easy conversation. They got a six-pack after the reception and drank it on the beach. He reminded her of her dad, kind and strong. I would have married him the next day, she says. Oh, they weren't perfect. You can't be married to someone for almost three decades without occasionally getting annoyed. The Ed Sheeran song, Shape of You, brings her to mush now. But it used to be downright grating. Chris would sing it, badly, and rub up against her during the part of the song that goes, Grab on my waist and put that body on me. She didn't think about it then, that Chris made her feel beautiful. He had this t-shirt that she always hoped would wind up in the trash, the infamous yellow shirt. Every married man has one of these shirts, which is both comfortable and grotesque. They'll have a closet full of clothes, but somehow always manage to gravitate back to the shirt, which is often worn with a regrettable pair of cargo shorts. When Chris died, nearly every photo on every TV and in every newspaper featured him in that yellow shirt. Now all she sees is that damn shirt. What he lacked in fashion sense he made up for as a father to Tommy and Corey, who has special needs. On Saturdays, he'd run to Dandy Donuts with Corey, scarfing down the donuts on the walk home, and always returning with a pistachio muffin for Debbie. The families of the 17 who died formed a group that meets at least once a month. It's a diverse collection of Republicans and Democrats who have bonded over shared grief. Although it's comforting to be around a group of people who know exactly what she's going through, sometimes Debbie feels out of place. They lost their babies. She lost her husband, her best friend, her confidant. She wonders what he'd think about how she's handling things without him. Like the lawn. He took such pride in that lawn. Her mowing skills are choppy and she can't figure out how to use half of the lawn equipment. I have a really hard time going to bed, she says. I think I'm just still waiting to see if maybe he'll come home. I have the messages he left on my phone, and he always says, I love you, before he hangs up. She listens to them every night before she falls asleep. A police detective told her that her husband was a hero, that he charged at the gunman and tried to disarm him. An official narrative from the Broward County Sheriff's Office has yet to be released. Jeff Morford An assistant principal at Stoneman Douglas, who was friends with Chris, has watched surveillance video and will say only this. He was the only one who ran into the building to save kids. When the Columbine shootings happened in 1999, Chris and Debbie watched in disbelief. They were working together in South Broward then. Their kids were young. The world was becoming more terrifying, and they decided to write out a will. We were really cognizant of the fact that that could be us, she says. But you don't ever think it's going to be you. Now I'm sitting here like, it's us. How all these years later is this still happening? Now Corey gets scared when his mom goes to work. He worries that she won't come home. Now for our second presentation, we present an excerpt from He Saves So Many Lives by Steve Wolf. 
He saved so many lives. Cross-country coach Scott Beagle, assistant football coach Aaron Feiss, and athletic director Chris Hickson are the 2018 ESPYs recipients of the Best Coach Award for the difference they made in the lives of students on and off the field of play. By Steve Wolf. To find Camp Starlight, take Route 17 to Hancock, New York, near where the state's southern border bends down toward New York City. Cross into Pennsylvania and follow Route 370 for a few miles. Look for the stone pillars that mark the entrance to the camp, which opened in 1947. Drive down a dirt road through a tunnel of trees until you emerge into sunlight and what appears to be the summer camp of dreams. There is a timeless quality about the place, which is being readied for the arrival of the first group of campers. It must have seemed this idyllic in 1959 when a music counselor named Paul Simon was recording songs as Jerry Landis. Songs like, When You Come Back to School. This is also where you would have found Scott Beagle for the past 28 summers. He first came to Starlight as a reluctant camper whose mother, Linda, gave him prepared fill-in-the-bubble notes to send home to Long Island. He returned, year after year, until he became a beloved staff member. Photos on the camp's Facebook page show his growth over the years and the constant sense of fun that made him so popular. For two months a year, Starlight was his home. As for the other ten months, well, Scott couldn't quite find the same feeling of stability. That is, until the summer of 2017, when the trail from Starlight led him to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, 1,300 miles away in Parkland, Florida. There was an opening for a ninth-grade geography teacher, and Jeff Foster sensed that Scott, a University of Miami grad, would be perfect for the position. When Foster is not teaching AP American government at Douglas, he is the athletic director at Camp Starlight. I thought Scott was a natural fit, Foster says. His campers loved him, and they were the same age and basic demographic as the students he would have at Douglas. He was easygoing, but at the same time, he could command a room. Foster reached out to Denise Reed, the assistant principal, and Sandra Davis, the head of the social studies department, and they brought Scott in for an interview in June. They mentioned they also needed a cross-country coach. Within five minutes, we knew, Reed says. He was someone we wanted to work with, and he was someone we knew the kids would love. He clearly loved teaching, and he made us laugh, Davis said. He made this funny, unassuming persona like Jerry Seinfeld. We spent most of the time pinching ourselves. At the end of the interview, they ran into a starlight camper and her mother. As Davis recalls, they told us, I don't know what you're interviewing him for, but you have to hire him. Scott just shrugged and said, what can I say? I planted them there. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High is named for the legendary naturalist whose life work was the preservation of the Everglades. The sprawling school campus is in Parkland, a meticulously developed community in northwest Broward County that was once part of the Everglades. The school was named after Douglas in 1990, the year she turned 100. She lived to be 108. Since its inception, Douglas has been one of the best high schools in Florida, with a student body of about 3,300 and a dizzying array of sports teams and extracurricular activities. When junior Cameron Caskey found out that Beagle would be teaching at Douglas, he was thrilled. I knew him from Camp Starlight, and he was also my fifth-grade language arts teacher at Pinecrest School. 
I didn't much like Starlight, but he was the best thing about it. And I was kind of a jerk in fifth grade, but Mr. Beagle turned my thinking around. Teaching freshmen is not easy, Foster says, and Beagle was given a fairly heavy workload that included seven classes plus coaching. I think he found it a little overwhelming, Foster says. But once he overcame those doubts and gained confidence, I started hearing really good things about how he was engaging with his students. Mr. Beagle made school fun, said Kelsey Friend, one of his homeroom students. But he also made geography really interesting. We weren't just looking at maps. We were finding out what it was like to live in those countries. As for his cross-country responsibilities, Scott looked upon them with amusement. He had no real experience when athletic director Chris Hickson told him he needed someone, anyone, to take over the team, and a dedication to physical fitness to match his runners. We knew more about running than he did, Captain Nick Boyer says. But he made it fun, and he knew when to get serious. He turned out to be a great motivator. The geography teacher had finally found his place. But then came Valentine's Day. At 2.19 p.m. on an otherwise beautiful Wednesday, Beagle was teaching Kelsey Friend in her class in room 1256 at the top of the east stairwell on the third floor of Building 12. According to official accounts, that's when Nicholas Cruz, a former student at the school, arrived with a semi-automatic rifle concealed inside a duffel bag. It was just half an hour before dismissal. We were talking about the Winter Olympics in South Korea, Kelsey says. He had assigned us countries to follow, and he had Olympic music playing from his Apple Watch through the Bluetooth speakers, and he was dancing around, and we were laughing. That's when the fire alarm went off. The shooter had entered the east entrance on the first floor and began firing into different classrooms and the hallway, killing 11 people before climbing the west stairwell to the second floor. Beagle started leading his students down to the second floor, but as the shots reverberated and sounds of panic intensified, he took them back to room 1256. Teachers on the second floor had bolted their doors and covered classroom windows. With no obvious targets, the shooter proceeded up the east stairwell to the third floor. Beagle had been trained to lock his door in an active shooting, but he also saw students outside. He kept the door open and ushered them into his classroom just before the shooter reached the third floor. The last student through the door was Matthew Zeif. When the gunman reached the top of the stairs, he shot Bagel six times from five feet away, and the teacher fell across the threshold to the classroom as students pressed themselves against the wall. According to one account, Beagle used his last breath to tell the shooter that the classroom was empty. Terrified, Matthew texted his older brother Sam, a senior who was sheltered in another room on a different floor. My teacher died, and he's sitting in the doorway. Mr. Beagle saved my life, Kelsey says. He saved so many lives. At least 20 students huddled in the room. After reloading, the shooter killed five more people on the third floor before abandoning the gun and escaping down the west stairwell, mixing in with panicked students. Within nine minutes of arriving at the school, he had killed 17 people and wounded 17 others. Of the fatalities, 14 were students, and three were staff members who were trying to protect students. Assistant football coach Aaron Feiss, Hickson, and Beagle. It wasn't until 82 minutes after his arrival at the school that the shooter was caught, 
Linda Beagle Shulman was on Long Island that afternoon, working as the office manager for her husband Michael's law firm. The day before, she had received a letter from her son, Scott, that was still making her smile. Linda had found his old camp lunchbox over the winter, filled with a bunch of blank notes, and she had sent the empty ones to him. Postmarked February 10th, the letter was addressed to Mother. Under the heading, The Food Is, he wrote, What I Eat When I'm Hungry. Under The Kids Are, he replied, Smaller Versions of Adults. What made it especially touching was that Scott didn't really need to write. He talked to Linda nearly every day, usually after class or practice. She had raised her two children mostly by herself and was close to them. But for some reason, Scott didn't call at his usual time that day. I knew something was wrong, Linda says. Michael was out sick that day and called to her to come home. There'd been a school shooting in Florida. When she turned on the car radio... She heard on the news that one of the victims was a geography teacher. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Liz Merrill. Liz, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. It's a a very, very amazing, powerful story. And I have to tell you, of the dozens of things that grabbed me as I read this multiple times is, um, is how the amount of heartbreaking and mundane tasks that were so necessary in the aftermath of this shooting. Well, you spoke about uh, assistant, um, assistant AD Marilyn AD, uh, assistant AD Marilyn rule going to the locker of Luke Hoyer. But then you also mentioned later how she noticed that Luke's name was being moved from the attendance sheet. And to me, those are the moments that seem so heartbreaking going through roll sheets, lockers, staff files, almost like you're complicit in the event can be uh, participating in this necessity of uh, almost like erasing their presence. And so how much of, how much of that did you feel weighed on the people you talked to? Like the fact that they had to, all they had to sort of just to keep moving, had to participate in, in the aftermath of all this. Yeah. You know, one of the things we set out at the beginning that I sure wanted to do was, you know, there's been a lot of stories Uh, And we talked about this, you know, you worry that there's fatigue over these kind of stories about school shootings, especially with Parkland. But we wanted to sort of give people an idea of what it was like. They still have to go on. Right. You know, there's been a lot of stories about gun control and mental health and protests, but like they still want to finish the school year. And I guess I couldn't fathom, I couldn't fathom like going, if I was a student, going back to that school, walking by that building. I mean, that building, they're not going to be able to tear down that building for, for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like just because that's all evidence in there. Sure. So there's all these little things that you don't think about, like the fact that the, one of the teachers whose classroom got shot up, she lost two kids, including Nick Dwarit. Mm-hmm. Um, all of her stuff is in there. Like yep. she had just moved and she put a lot of her, books and things that are very close to her heart as you know if you're a teacher for a long time none of that stuff can be accessed because it's all evidence so yeah there are these mundane things that they have to do you have to carry on yeah and i'm sorry i was just saying it goes beyond how you know you tell the story about how like even sitting down at a meal 
when you know there yeah. were five, there were four plates or now there are three plates or five you know one missing like that's something that you can like anyone that experienced a loss can sort of vision or anticipate but it's it's these heartbreaking moments that you can't anticipate like the the, the minutia that you can't anticipate which seems to really I thought I thought was actually some of the most heartbreaking in what you described. Yeah, I, I never thought about that stuff until um, until I sat down with these families. And to be honest with you, I don't mean to veer off here, so tell me if I'm veering off. You are not but, veering off. Okay. Well, so when this happened, you know, I, I probably sh- I probably showed up in Parkland like a couple of days after the shooting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, knowing that like we're not immediately writing something, so we have some time. Um, nobody was like none of those victims' families were ready to talk. No. What we try to do in those situations is we, we don't want to like uh, at least I don't want to like cold call them right after they're dealing with this horrible thing. So usually you try to find somebody who's like an intermediary who knows them, who can talk to them. And I mean nobody was ready to talk. And so for a couple of months, we sort of thought the story was going to be about. Marilyn Rule, the girls' basketball coach and assistant AD, kind of guiding, you know, her team and her family through this. And we had talked to uh, a girls' basketball player. I won't say her name, but one of the kids on the team, I had sat down with her. And it's just this compelling story about this kid who wasn't getting therapy. Um, you know, her mom thought it would be good to talk to somebody. So she was going to talk to us. I sat with her at a Starbucks. Um, she wore this medal around her neck that she got from like a veteran, a Gulf War veteran. That was, she, she knew Aaron Fife. It devastated her. She couldn't sleep in her bed for a month. None of that made the story mm-hmm. because a, what happened was she stopped talking to me. Um, it, because we were going to, we had this plan. I was going to kind of follow her through prom and all this stuff. And yep. it, I, I, I have to assume it was just too hard to, to continue to do this. But also because um, uh, in May, around like in May, um, some of the victims' families, you know, felt comfortable opening up. And it started with one one family who felt comfortable and started talking. And I remember driving to like see Debbie Hickson at her school and getting a text from uh, Nick Dwart's dad. Like, Hey, I heard you want to get a hold of me, you know, can you meet? Mm-hmm. And so like three, it was like three at once. So at that point we're like, okay, what is the story? It's still the same story, but you know, it, uh, I'm kind of in a disorganized mass sometimes as a writer <laughs> And so I need heavy editing. And when posed with this, yeah, you want to tell their stories. Uh, but just how do we do that, knowing what we have and what we're trying to accomplish? And But, like, uh, I really wanted to be able to get all of their voices in there because I think it's so important to know their perspectives and, and sort of what they've had to go through. And so... You know, that's the that's kind of the big worry, though, is like, you know, are you giving people the reader whiplash going from one person to the next? But it's like, you know, one of the editors said, look, this is a messy story. It's horrible things happen. Um, And not everything is going to be in some tight little pack, neat package. And so, you know, that's kind of 
how this wound up being. It's just trying to have some organized organization in like, you know, this horribly disorganized mess that, you know, so. Yes. And, and when you speak to how just almost by instinct, when the media presence right off the start with a story like that is the natural reaction to anybody was, would probably be, I'm not going to go to everybody. I'm, I'm going to, a lot of people would think I'm just going to shut down. I'm not really ready to talk to anybody yet because I'm dealing with this absolute chaos in my life. But the media presence was something that we all saw. I mean, like anytime you saw a report from there over anyone's shoulder, there was multiple news, news cameras and production trucks and whatnot. But I guess what I wanted to ask you is what happened when the crews left? Meaning was there a sense of security and that attention and was or and was going back to being as normal as possible something they craved or was it more careful what you asked for because now nothing is the same it will ever be well i mean i think there's a general look in any situation there's a general distrust of the media mm-hmm. um i've heard from multiple people that uh uh from the victims families like on a couple of occasions where the media got stuff wrong, like details wrong. Mm -hmm. And some of them were pretty big details. So they really, they were cutting it off after that, you know, like, you know, somebody would cold call about something maybe for, you know, just like a quick obituary or something, you know, like a quick story. And that, uh, because there were things that were wrong Mm -hmm. and and because it was obviously so horrible, they didn't want it. They they didn't want to deal with it. Uh, and so I think that, you know, trying to convince them that, Hey, you know, we're going to, uh, put a lot of people into the, you know, like we're going to, we're going to put a lot of attention and um, resources and effort into this and that we care about your story. But like, it, it's, it's a mixed bag because, you know, the media has helped sort of bring uh, to light the protests mm-hmm. the Emma Gonzalez's, you know, who, who've tried to push, you know, w- what they want to say forward with the March on mm-hmm. DC and, throughout the country. So I think it's a deal where they, you know, some people want that media uh, attention, but obviously if you're in the middle of it, like, like, you know, so many of these families were, you, you don't want it. And it's too hard. Like, you know, I, I, you know, Maddie Wilford, um, I mean, she was left, you know, the first responders thought she was dead. She's been through so much. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously be a great story. She's not ready, uh, understandably so, right. to to sit down and do, I mean, I don't blame her. I can't imagine being, you know, 16, 17 years old and having to deal with something like that. Uh, you know, the wounds that she sustained, it's, you know, miraculous that she's alive. That's what her dad said. But like, um, the, you know, the thing, and I'm veering again, <laughs> um, sorry, but this whole thing has such a rippling effect. Um, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that Elton John song, empty garden with the insect, one insect destroying so much grain. Mm -hmm. It's like that with this story. It's like, um, with this, with this school, you know, there was uh, last month and I, I don't know how much this was publicized except for locally, but two of their security monitors, were let go and barred from campus. Mm-hmm. Well, these guys were baseball coaches. They were assistant baseball coaches. They were 
pretty, I think they were pretty well-respected and liked in the community. The baseball team is the marquee program there. Mm-hmm. Um, they're nationally ranked. Um, you know, they, they were, they won a state championship a couple of years ago. And you're talking about two guys who are in, you know, as they're like trying to get back to the state championship, the stuff is unfolding. And so you've got people who, you know, there's one side that thinks that these people didn't do enough. You know, the, uh, Broward County Sheriff uh, Scott Israel, he's been on TV a ton. Mm-hmm. He's under a lot of fire. Uh, and he was an assistant football coach at Stillman Douglas years ago. He was close friends with Vice. There's all of these, you know, there, there's all these people who, uh, there's all this pain. And, you know, there's just all this tension. And it just had this ripple effect throughout the entire school. You know, you've got coaches who won't be there next year. You know, you've got teachers who who aren't going to be there. Uh, It's just, I think, I mean, it's astounding. The the loss of human life obviously is so, um, is so astounding and so horrible. You know, also though, just everything that's happened. I mean, it's affected everything. Obviously. Now you mentioned. a lot, obviously, Marilyn Rule, the assistant AD, and even though her role is changing at the school, uh, do you think this is a place that she could ever leave? And I guess the question also is, is there strength in leaving or, or there, is there strength in staying? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if she's like, I know that she just didn't talk, she's obviously probably the person I talked to the most throughout this story. Um, I think that she prides herself on being a teacher, whether it be on the court or in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like so many of other, so many other people, she's been through a lot and it takes months to maybe process how much she's been through. Yep. Um, and so I think that that question might not be answerable, especially by me, because mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying. Um, I, I just don't have the answer because, like, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of different. I know there were a lot of different reasons why she's not coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not just one. It's it's probably twenty. Yes. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, she's the type of person who wants to put everything into whatever she's doing, and uh, and so that's and, and she's is taking over that program. You know, you could say the same thing about her family. You know, she was not home hardly at all this last semester. Right. Her kid, you know, her oldest is going to be uh, a senior baseball player. He's he's a really good baseball player, mm-hmm. um, and he's going to be going off to college somewhere or, or playing somewhere, and so she. You know, there, besides that, there are a lot of, uh, you know, even with the team and that decision to forfeit, it seemed like the natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even that was such a hard sort of gut-wrenching thing to do. And I know it's like, it's just a game. And she would say that too. Yeah. But just every every sort of thing when something like this happens is like second-guessed and agonized over. And so just knowing, not knowing, knowing the emotions, but obviously not knowing what any of these, these people have been through. I see what you're saying with that question, but I just can't answer it. I, cause I don't know. I, I, I don't know how, how I would react in that situation. Yeah. It seems like it's probably the individual call, but, uh, but then 
there's also, you know, sort of what you talked about with forfeiting the basketball game and then talking about like the Dwarfs and their decision to go to, um, to Nick's graduation where it seemed important for them to do that, even though it was really painful because when those moments are gone, they're gone. And while it may be painful to, to go to that, it seems that they had the sense that was pretty, I felt to be pretty enlightened at that point. Their lives were like most people's brains. I don't know how they would be operating, but it seems that going through something that's painful is, uh, is not as bad as maybe a year or two from now when things have calmed down a little bit and then dealing with regret because when that moment was gone, it was gone forever. Yeah. You know, I also think there's strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. Like, um, other parents had of the, the, you know, other parents who lost kids went. Uh, and, and I think that that sort of is probably helpful. Like that was, uh, yeah, I, you know, it is sort of like the worst thing you, you have to do. You know, that's like, that was like a huge milestone for them. Obviously, when you think about your kid, what are the, what are the biggest milestones that you're going to, you're going to see? It's, it's, it's prom. Mm-hmm. It's, it's graduation. It's getting yeah. married. It's, you know, and, and they're never going to see the wedding and the, you know, the first grandkid for Nick, but, you know, they, they still could tangibly see him, you know, not receive his diploma, but sort mm-hmm. of that diploma, him getting that diploma. Yeah. But, you know, the, the one thing that really, um, uh, I was like that really, uh, imp- I don't, I don't want to say impressed me, but like that I uh, saw that was interesting was just the way these families have sort of bonded and come together. These victims families, it's like so many of them do not have much in common. Um, you know, one of them is a CFO. Uh, another one is a nurse. They mm-hmm. obviously have different political affiliations or, and are probably pretty passionate about those, especially after something like this. But right. they all sort of have that common ground now. They know what each other has been through. Like um, the thing with uh, the Hoyers going over to see Debbie Hickson in yes. um, June. I mean, these guys didn't know each other before all this happened. Um, but yet they're bonded now and, and, and they're helping each other. And if there's any shred of positive light that has come out of all this, you know, that's something that's, that's sort of positive that these that these folks have been able to lean on each other and, and be there for each other. Now you mentioned, um, you told the story, uh, one of your, in the piece, you had Ivy Sh- uh, Shamus. Is that how you pronounce her? Yes. Name? Uh, the teacher yeah. room 1214 where, where swimmer Nick Ward, uh, was killed and Helen Ramsey. Uh, she told you if the shooter did come in to her room, she would say that she loved him. Now, did you yeah. encounter not just that with the staff, like maybe some compassion for the shooter, but uh, faculty or staff where they essentially prepared themselves for how they would react if, you know, the moment occurred? Yeah, I don't think you could ever prepare for something like that. I mean, you remember probably being in school and like doing the fire drills and stuff. And you're like, okay, we have to walk outside. And, you know, you're sort of unconscious when you're doing that. You know, you're talking to your friends or whatever. I think that 
Ivy, and by the way, Ivy is just a tremendously, just an amazing, all these people are just, were amazing people. But like, um, she, I think she knew that if that happened, that they were, they were in, it was going to be a horrible situation. I mean, they were, I don't want to say, the, you know, I'm, they, they were screwed, basically. If, yes. if something like that happened, that they were ill-prepared for that. The classrooms, the way those classrooms are set up, a lot of them, I don't know, I, I haven't obviously seen every classroom, but her classroom in particular, there's no place to go mm-hmm. if someone comes in and starts firing. It's not like, uh, it's not like they've got some closet to hide in. So, right. um, you know, they've got so little time to react. I think, you know, that's sort of unique to her personality about telling him that she loved him. I think that's just kind of the person she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know if he pulled like 50 other teachers there. They would have that same response. Probably not. But um, th- there was a concern. Um, there was a lawsuit that was filed uh, recently uh, uh, that is probably going to bring to light a lot of those concerns. I think you're, you know, there's obviously, this is probably one in many different lawsuits that are going to come out of this, but, um, yeah, there was concern, you know, but they, she didn't know what she was going to do. She knew that they were sitting ducks if something like that happened and then it did. And, you know, uh, they, I, I know we're probably running out of time here, but like, um, there was like some really, there was a lot of interesting stuff with Ivy even that didn't make the cutting, you know, that didn't, that fell on the cutting room floor basically mm-hmm. because, um, you know, she, so her and her husband are so cute. They're like, uh, been married forever and are super in love. I mean, I met them at like a California pizza kitchen. I if I can remember right. And, you know, they're the type of couple that like holds hands. They're just like super, uh, super sweet. And like, you know, this happened on Valentine's day. Mm -hmm. So she like, at some point they get access to a phone. I think a lot of the cell phones weren't, were jammed when that happened. And they were, got access to a phone that worked and she called her husband and he answers the phone and says, hello, Valentine, Mm -hmm. not knowing anything that was going on. And, you know, she's like, obviously it was just, then, you know, she tells him that they're like, you know, locked in this room you know, their, their, their room has been fired upon. She didn't, you know, and the other thing about her too, there's a lot of things I could, you know, there was a, the SWAT team told them not to look down right? Um, as they were directing them out of there. And, you know, she's glad she didn't because she didn't see Nick and Helena on the ground. But a lot of those kids did. Mm-hmm. They also, the, they started like a slack uh, channel together mm-hmm. and they text each other. This class does her mm-hmm. class. So whenever they're going through stuff, there's just like this long string of like messages to each other. Hey, I, my dress that day was ruined, but I found like a pair of shoes that were just like the ones that, you know, had blood on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, this would be this long string of messages between her classmates about this stuff that, you know, unimaginable stuff. But yet, since they're talking about it and they were, they all were part of that, you know, that that's helping them get through it. Um, so, yeah, just uh, so many amazing things to just like and just gut wrenching, riveting things to come out of talking to her and obviously from the Hoyers and just like being in, in, in these guys' living rooms and just like, I don't know, you know, hearing some of the stuff they've experienced that's obviously just 
unfathomable. Now, everything that everyone experienced that year that you aptly called the longest year of their lives, even though it's only, sadly, it's been five months. Yeah. Uh, do you, what do you think, like, of all the, the experience and witness and in the aftermath of all this, what do you think is the one thing that the people of the Stoneman Douglas community want people outside of their community to take away from all this? Um, you know, I, I, one thing that the victim's family told me, like it seemed to be pretty uniform, you know, that the, that the victim's families told me was that, you know, they might not agree on things politically, but they all share one thought, one hope that, that they can make school safer and that they can prevent this from ever happening again. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously in the time since that it has happened again, it's happened in Texas. Um, you know, uh, another just with just a significant amount of human lives lost. And, yes. you know, I talked to some of them after that uh, and they're just in disbelief that this keeps happening. But that, that's the one thing I think that each one of these guys, want people, at least the people who are closest to it, uh, who lost loved ones. I mean, they don't want this to happen again. They want to do whatever they can, you know, and they're real quick to like, that was one thing that I found with each one of them that I talked to. It's like, Hey, I don't want to make this political. Um, I don't want to like in, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but we all just want this to never happen again. Um, and so that that was the main message, and and perhaps by, you know, they figured by that maybe by sharing what they've been through, that that would help shed light on that they, these aren't just numbers, you know, these aren't just these statistics. At the end of the year, we show these infographs, you know, that this X amount of people have been killed in school shootings. These are lives, you know, and I think that's what they that was kind of the impetus behind them talking and sharing their stories. Well, Liz, this was a unbelievably well-written piece, well put together and unbelievably reported. And I do hope it's a piece that you never have to write again. I hope so too, Mike. I really do. And I, I appreciate your time and, and letting me come on here and talk about the story. Oh no, thank you. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Liz. Joining me now is ESPN senior writer Steve Wolf. Steve, thank you so much for taking the time. Mike, it's a pleasure to talk to you, even if it's not a podcast. <laughs> this was uh, an unbelievably well-done piece. And one of the first things that grabbed me about it is something, I mean, it sounds it, this may sound trite to use this as an example, but I felt it really applied here where it seems that if I wanted to make a movie to get awareness about a situation like this. Now, if I wanted to make a movie about a, a teacher who dies tragically in a school shooting, and I picked, I pitched it as a fictitious tale, but I used the facts of Scott Beagle's life, that every studio would pass, that they would say, this is um, there's too much hyperbole here. The best and nicest guy who calls his mom every day and touches every life is not true. Right. I need some character flaws. But this is real. He is as real as it gets. He is very real. Um, you know, I went down uh, to do the story on Scott, mm-hmm. um, and uh, my first visit with him 
All right. Uh, was at his funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, and with each speaker at the funeral, uh, I became more and more fascinated by him. I wanted to know him better. And then his mother gets up and I go, wow. Um, with the, with the lunchbox. With the lunchbox. Um, yeah, this was somebody I really wanted to know. Now, in one of the parts of the story, you have assistant principal Denise Reed when she's interviewing Scott, Scott, and she tells you later, within five minutes we knew, like for this, and that seems like a theme throughout the whole, throughout everyone you encountered in your journey to find who he was, that it didn't take long for him to make an impression. No, he connected with people right away, and it was in an unusual sort of way, as as they pointed out, it was an understated sort of Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David mm-hmm. kind of persona, uh, where you he endeared himself to people without shouting at them without um without you know being an orator mm-hmm. um he simply got to know these people uh and they immediately sensed the empathy in him and he could be he could somehow be he seemed that he could be the center of attention without necessarily ever acting like the center of attention right one of the one of the the teacher who had actually recommended him Jeff mm-hmm. Foster uh actually said he was very soft spoken and he was very very um sort of self-effacing, mm-hmm. but at the same time, he could command a classroom. So I will say that I have to mention this part because I was slightly proud of myself on this, <laughs> is I've read this story several times, and about the third or fourth time in, I went, wait a minute, and I read, and I went back, and I read and went back. I like the geography lesson in each section. Yeah, I, tr- I, I, I kind of did that on purpose. Yes. Um, but he's a geography teacher. Yes. And the essence of the story is that he had finally found his place. Mm-hmm. His, uh, his so, place on the map, yes. His place on the map. Um, so with each section, I did a little geographical lesson, mm-hmm. um, starting with Camp Starlight, which is where he spent most of his summers, mm-hmm. uh, and then going to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Mm-hmm. Um uh, the temple where the funeral was held, mm-hmm. um, the park where the tribute for Coach Beagle was. Uh, there was another little park where I talked with the cross-country runners. Um, and then uh, finally, um, his uh, his parents' home in Dix Hills, Long Island. That was, yeah, I was, I felt like I had like a Da Vinci Code moment where I just, I had completely unlocked it. But um, the title for this piece is He Saves So Many Lives, which is, a, a quote from the story, and it does speak to his legacy outside the classroom, yet it seems that it's not a legacy he would want. And by that, I mean, you also mentioned um, the cross-country team and the chaos of his memorial with people running when they weren't supposed to yet, and the speeches and the candles and the balloons fell flat, and that's what he would want. So it seems that the that contradiction seems to be the one place throughout this narrative that people who knew Scott would refuse to agree with him. Like, no, that your legacy is more than you think. Right. He would have been embarrassed by being called a hero. He would have been embarrassed by having a big deal made out of him. Mm -hmm. But he would, as the cross country team made apparent, he would have been laughing at the, at the, at the tribute to him at, at the, at the park. And which is, and it's really from a, from an outside standpoint, I thought it was a beautiful, Evening, mm-hmm. a beautiful way to celebrate his memory and those of the other teachers and, and students. 
Um, but they were mortified because uh, they 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 had they couldn't light the candles. The runners took off before the speeches. Everything <laughs> everything seemed to go wrong to them. By the same token, by from what I saw, it was a beautiful beautiful evening. And from what you're saying, everything seemed to go wrong to them. But actually, everything went right if Scott Beagle was there to actually see it. Right, right. But that that run they have is the is the is their plans moving forward? Like, is that going to be something that they do every year? Or I'm sure I'm sure that I'm sure that they'll have regular events for him. They mm-hmm. they have had other runs for him in other cities. Uh-huh. Um, you know, it'll be an, it'll be an ongoing tribute to him, uh, and I hope it keeps going because 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 it's not only for Scott Beagle; it's for it's for the other teachers who were killed. It's for every teacher in at Stoneman Douglas. It's mm-hmm. for every teacher everywhere. Right. Um, I mean, at the funeral, um, Denise Reed, the assistant principal, mm-hmm. um, asked that all the teachers uh, in the temple stand up. Mm-hmm. And there were there were you know scores of teachers sure. there. Um, and it was at that moment that I realized uh, just how uh, important. And dedicated and undervalued, these these teachers really are. It's taking this tragedy in a way, then and saying it's almost like how sometimes at a funeral you'll get two people who say we need to stop meeting this way, almost as a joke, meaning that we shouldn't need a tragedy for this sort of recognition. Correct. And basically, that if we're going to get anything out of this, let's remember that, yes, we lost people, but there are people that are still here doing these jobs every day, knowing that, unfortunately, these stories are probably going to have to still be written. Yes. You know, and I've written them before. Um, and in and each of those instances at Virginia Tech 10 mm-hmm. years ago, uh, Newtown, um, uh, six Christmases ago, mm-hmm. um, I came away with the with the sense that um, that although I, I, you might damn the world that enables these tragedies to happen over and over again, mm-hmm. you really have to bless the people who turn these tragedies into a different story altogether. Um, you know, their resolve and their grace and their strength uh, to me is incredible, and that's why I come away from each of these stories not. Uh, not disheartened, but but heartened. With yes, with so, so what are what are some of the com- like with your work you've done before? You've already done work earlier on this the Parkland shooting, and you've done the work as you said on the marching band of Virginia Tech and the girls' basketball team from Newtown, Connecticut. As almost you know, Parkland is so recent, and the other ones are a little bit down the line. What are the common threads you see from the aftermath of these events? In like, is there a common evolution that you've noticed as time moves on? Like, in in a way, like, what could the people of Parkland expect? In each of those instances, you could sort of sense um, that before the people resume their lives, mm-hmm. um, they take a deep sigh, and then they and they um, they go after it. They, mm-hmm. they 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 go after the same things with increased dedication and love um uh i i was struck by um by sandra davis social studies department uh talking about going back into teach one of scott's classes after mm-hmm. school had resumed and her coming away with the sense that wow he was a really good teacher 
you know, he had really engaged these kids, and they were eager to show her what they had learned. Um, and 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 it's that sort of dedication of these teachers to to continue the work. And just in and that's sort of how they could honor those that they lost. Correct. Like yeah. in, by not stopping what you did, but continuing it. Yeah, I, one of the the fir, the very first story I did um, from Parkland about mm-hmm. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was uh, a wrestling tournament, mm-hmm. uh, the sectionals. And uh, the athletic director, Chris Hickson, was the wrestling coach. And uh, his, his, um, his wrestlers went directly from his funeral to the sectionals at Coral Springs High School. Wow. So I'm, going, I, I'm wondering, oh, my God, how, how difficult is this going to be for these kids? Um, and in one of the first matches of the sectionals, um, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the lineup, and there's a um, there's a wrestler from Marjorie Stone Douglas who's uh, 160 pounds, mm-hmm. um, and her name is Sarah Ochoa. Mm-hmm. I go, oh, this is interesting. There's a there's a woman wrestler, a girl mm-hmm. wrestler on this team, and she comes out, um, and she she pins her opponent in 16 seconds. <laughs> Um, and she leaps into the arm of the assistant coach who had been helping Chris Hickson. Mm-hmm. Um, and her mother, uh, who's a golf pro, uh, later described it as pure heart power. Um, and that's what I witness over and over again, that pure heart power. Wow. That is that is the one to avoid us being wrapped up in sort of cynicism. That's exactly what we need to focus on when you see all these things. But uh, what about going to Camp Starlight? It seems that I've heard you hear from everybody a lot. I mean, eventually, once things a little bit calm down, it seems like Camp Starlight is sort of kind of closed ranks. Were they were able to were you able to actually speak to them? No, I had, um, I, I talked to Jeff Foster, of course, who's who's the athletic director yes. there. Um, uh, and I drove through there. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just cleaning up the grounds when I was driving through there. I kind of felt like an interloper, and I, I thought I was intruding. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I could see, I could see from the grounds, you know, the be- just a beautiful camp with redwood cabins right on the lake, and these you know great fields and open air meeting halls. Uh, that it really was an idyllic camp. Do you know? Do you know of through the AD? Do they have any plans to memorialize him there? Um, I, you know, I tried to talk to the camp and they, they did not get back to me on that. Um, but I'm sure, I'm sure they have things there. Um, uh, but I could, I could understand why Scott kept coming back there year after year after year. His, um, and his mother, when she, you know, when you saw that someone she wants, you'd want to know where, when I mentioned the lunchbox and how it was the lunchbox that she gave him and she gave him those notes because she was afraid he wasn't going, because he was so soft spoken, as you said. And even as a kid, and he would, she would give these notes like fill in the blank, like the food is or right. the kids are, right. and how part of to your point of his sense of humor, he gave her those notes again when he was in his like twenties and thirties. Well, well, he, she had actually found some of the notes uh, over the winter, mm-hmm. and she sent them to him, <laughs> um, and he wrote one back, and she received it on February thirteenth. Um, and he addressed the the um, the letter to mother, um, and uh, the 
when it said uh, the food is, he said something that I eat. <laughs> and then the, the kids are, and he said smaller versions of adults. Um, so that was that kind of tells you his sort of sense of dry humor. Yes. Is, but as you, as you got to know his mother more based on the strength you saw that she had at his funeral, is she someone that you feel is we're going to be hearing from in the years to come because she's going to be an advocate? Yes, yes, she'll be a very strong advocate. Um, she's not. She's not going to. She's not going to. She's not going to rest at all. No. And it's and it's interesting that um, you know she's involved with many of the kids in the March for Our Lives movement mm-hmm. now. Um, so she's going to be front and center. Um, and you know she'll be a she's she'll be a powerful and beautiful advocate for gun reform. Now, while we've seen you know March for Our Lives, just what we were saying with uh, Scott Beagle's mother, and we've seen the vocal ap- activism and what the students at Stoneman Douglas High School were able to do. Over like that's, I'm wondering if that's in your experience at Virginia Tech with what you saw in Newtown, Connecticut. Is that like a vocal minority, or do you th- do or do events like this overall make a lot of people sort of more cynical and less hopeful, or is it in fact the opposite of that? Like they are the majority. I th- I think it, I think it's the opposite of that. Yeah. Um. I'm I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a segment of society that you know doesn't want to hear about this anymore. Mm-hmm. Um. But I do remember in the Virginia Tech story I did. Um, one of the victims was uh, a band leader in the Marching Virginians, Ryan Stack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, he was charismatic and very powerful. And they, he, you know, they missed him terribly and they wanted to honor him. Um, and uh, so they, they prepared a new arrangement of Amazing Grace mm-hmm. um, that called out all of the victims. So, so there was a real, there was a musical musical metaphor in there that mm-hmm. is incredibly powerful. Yes. And so he's he's laying he so he laid the responsibility of bringing the school back on the baritones. That is I that I had not heard that is impressive. What so we all see these stories and we you know we watch it on the news and the breaking news we're all glued to the television and we see we can't imagine what that would be like and like any other situation, you can assume if you haven't been part of it, you can assume you can know. Like I bet that would be sky. I bet it would be horrible to get out of bed. But you don't know until you're there. Like just like you don't know what it's like to be a parent until you're a parent. Mm-hmm. So the the final question I would ask is: after all this and what you know you've experienced from other places at Stoneman in the Stone Stoneman Douglas community, what do you think the legacy? What do you think that they want? all the people outside of their community to take away from all this who didn't experience it? Um, I think, I think that they would want the legacy to be that they're that not just that they're carrying on, Mm -hmm. uh, but they're trying to make their school better, uh, that they're trying to, uh, they're they're trying to go out, the, the students who go out into the world from now on, uh, will want to make a difference, right? Um, uh, you know, whatever that may be. I mean, it, people have seen it. It's an incredible group of student activists mm-hmm. who have come out of out of Stoneman Douglas. But I think each of the students, and I talked, I did this on the hockey team and on the wrestling team, 
and the cross-country runners. And there's a real sense of purpose to what they want to do with their lives now. Um, I wouldn't, I, you know, I would venture to say that, um, that there'll be an entire generation of teachers coming out of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, uh, just because the teachers there have been so inspiring. Well, that is amazing. This was an unbelievably well-reported piece. Steve, thank you so much for your time with us. Mike, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.